7.02 on a Friday. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Accurate Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Accurate dealer today. Uh, hour two of this program, which is currently underway, uh, Brady Henderson is going to join us in just a moment here to talk a little Seahawks. Hour two of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Uh, of the many things to watch this weekend, if you're an early riser, 6.30 our time on Sunday. That's right, 6.30 our time on Sunday. It is going to be... The Buccaneers and the Seattle Seahawks from Germany. One of the many uh, forays that the NFL is doing to Europe this season. Uh, the, If I'm not mistaken, the Seahawks are a two-and-a-half-point dog to a very mediocre Buccaneers team, so there could be some value there. Uh, joining us now to break it all down, our good buddy from ESPN's NFL Nation, Seahawks insider Brady Henderson here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Brady. How are you? Hey, morning, fellas. I am doing good, other than the fact that I'm not in Germany for this game. I'm going to have to cover it from home. Uh, aside from that, I'm doing all right. How are you? Uh, we're good, thanks. Yeah, so what has that been like this week? Because it must throw prep and the usual course of action leading into a traditional Sunday game all out of whack. Uh, I know that there is a significant time difference. Obviously, you're on the West Coast, and the, the players got in. They're trying to go through the, the rigmarole as often and as normal as possible, but it's got to be very difficult to try and do your standard prep and getting ready for a game when it's this far out of whack uh it is a little different yeah i mean certainly a lot more different for them uh than it is for me but they um left after practice on wednesday so i think they they sort of tried to find i think the best balance of um you know minimizing the impact on their you know weekly preparation uh and also getting there in enough time to really sort of get acclimated to the the time difference and all that i think it's um that 10 hour, nine, nine or 10 hour time difference, if I remember correctly. Um, so they left on Wednesday. I think uh, other, I think the Buccaneers did not leave until Thursday. Um, they left Wednesday after practice. So they had basically two practices, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, um, you know, schedule and practice and rest and all that. Uh, have you been keeping track of how many subtle shots Pete Carroll has taken at Russell Wilson? Because it is extended all the way to a wristband now. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, and I sort of think that that whole conversation has gotten a little overblown. Uh, you know, Carol was saying that that has been sort of a difference in their operation this year in terms of kind of streamlining things, in terms of the play getting called and everything. Now, he did not mention Wilson by name. I, I think it's safe to say that he was talking about Wilson um, when he said that there was some resistance to that last year, and I, I think, you know, Look, I, it was a very, very minor – I don't even know if it was a shot so much as, so much as it was just, um, you know, him kind of trying to, to explain why Gina was wearing it now, whereas Wilson was not. Um, I thought Wilson had a decent clapback to that, saying that, you know, they won a lot of games uh, without it. He didn't know that you had to wear a wristband to, to win games. But, um, I mean, I will say it does seem like the whole – play calling operation in terms of the play getting called uh, the quarterback relaying it to the offense and, you know, the quarterback getting everybody lined up uh, in time to, to get the playoff without, you know, in the past, it always seemed like 
a lot of those deals came down to the wire and the ball was getting snapped at, you know, with one second left on the play clock and you're just seeing the clock tick down, wondering if they're going to get it off. And a lot of times they didn't and they had to burn timeouts. And um, that is the benefit of a quarterback wearing the wristband where, you know, the, the, instead of, you know, wasting all that time um, with, you know, the coordinator, having to regurgitate the entire play call, I, the way I understand it is there's some uh, a shortened version of that, whether it's like a uh, alphanumeric system where he just, you know, it's, it's a very short play call that he says the quarterback finds that on the wristband uh, and then he relays it to the rest of the team. So you end up saving a couple seconds in there uh, by the OC not having to spit out the entire play call. And uh, according to Carroll, that, that's making a difference in their operation this year. We're speaking to Brady Henderson from ESPN's NFL Nation here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Brady is our Seahawks insider. And Brady, I, start, I prefaced the conversation here by talking about the Germany aspect of this because I think it's important to take a step back and realize what's going on here. So when the NFL announced that they were going to do this, play a regular season game in Germany, uh, it was going to make history. It's the first time that a regular season game had been played in that country. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the team that they put in there was Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, one of the most, if not the most recognizable faces in the NFL. Since that's happened, this <laughs> entire thing has been turned on its head. Because really, the, the story going into this game should be this remarkable Seahawks team, how improbable this is. The fact that Geno Smith has thoroughly outplayed Tom Brady, yet... All the conversation going into it, and I even noticed this from the Seahawks side as they were fielding questions, is like Shane Waldron and his time that he spent on a team with Tom Brady and Clint Hurt talking about how they're going to shut down Tom Brady. And it's almost kind of laughable because the Buccaneers have been so bad offensively that you'd think there'd be a million other things to talk about or even the pushing of and promoting of Geno Smith. Yet, lo and behold, and I suppose this is inevitable with Tom Brady, uh, the focus is on number 12 and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers right now. Yeah, and I think some of that is inevitable. You know, a lot of the conversations about the Seahawks that you would want to have this week, I mean, I think part of it is just that we've been having those conversations, you know, and, and the the story of the Seahawks and how good Geno Smith has been, how good their draft class has been, Yuchen uh, Nwosu, how good he's been as a free agent. I, I think a lot of those conversations have been had, and you're sort of like it's sort of you're running out of ways to tell those stories as as a somebody covering the team and so I I think it's natural that the conversation is going to be a little bit about Brady this week and you know I I think it's not only you know that Tom Brady and the Bucks were a natural choice for this game in Jordan I think the Seahawks were also a natural choice just because they have a very big following uh, over there and you know I I know they are not sort of the the prime time uh, appeal without Russell Wilson that they used to be with him but um you know, they're a very good team and they also have, uh, you know, they're pretty popular in Germany. I remember somebody with the team was showing me um, some of their metrics and I, I don't, I don't really understand why it is, why the Seahawks of all teams would be big in Germany, but uh, they are. And so, um, yeah, I wish I could, I wish I was over there and I could sort of give you an idea of uh, how many fans there are there uh, just from the streets there. But I, I just know from seeing metrics and from, um, sort of seeing it on Twitter that they've, they've got a pretty big fan base there. And they're, so I think that's, a, that's part of the reason why they're in this game along with uh, Tom Brady. They're the David Hasselhoff of NFL teams maybe or something <laughs> yeah. like that. I don't know. Exactly. Uh, big in Germany. <laughs> Do you think Geno Smith, is, is this whole conversation about Geno Smith maybe getting some MVP votes, is that, is, that a, is that a little much or is there something to it? 
Um, I, I mean, look, the MVP, as we know, it's usually the guy who puts up, you know, the, the ungodly numbers and plays on the best team. And he's not really doing either of those right now. Um, so, you know, I, look, he's, he's, I think a few kind of far behind in touchdown passes. Um, he's got a, a really good team, but there's still two wins, I think behind the, uh, Philadelphia Eagles. And so, uh, I think it, it would take a lot. It would take a huge surge in production from him and a huge sort of surge up the standings for the Seahawks. I think you're, it's more realistic for him to win comeback player of the year. Um, I believe as of a week or so ago, he was he had the, the second shortest odds for that award behind Saquon Barkley. Certainly there's going to be some headwind for him knowing that you know Saquon Barkley plays in the New York market and things just tend to get skewed in that direction. Uh, so I think it's more likely that he wins that award. And I think even if he doesn't win MVP, I think you're looking at maybe a, a Pro Bowl nod for him. Uh, just when you compare his numbers to other quarterbacks in the NFC, I mean, he's he's right there. So MVP seems like it might be a stretch unless something big happens, but uh, he certainly could get some hardware after this season. When would the Seahawks and Geno Smith tar- start talking contract extension? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, normally that's not something the Seahawks do in season. I can think of, I think two times where they've done a big contract, uh, late in the year. It was uh, KJ Wright, uh, and Michael Bennett a long time ago. And I, I think those were sort of, uh, had some cash flow implications there. And that's part of the reason why they did them then, but usually they wait until the off season. And I think if, Look, I, 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 we were, I was on another podcast and they were sort of throwing around numbers about the type of deal that Geno Smith might command. And somebody said, you know, $25 million a year. And I, I tore $20 million a year. I said, it's going to be way more expensive than that. And so usually how this works, when you're a player uh, who is in line, uh, who's going to be a free agent who is in line for a massive deal is they're going to say, okay, what would it cost to franchise tag me next year? And I think the projections from – uh, over the cap having it like 31.5 million or something. So the quarterback says, okay, what would it then cost to franchise tag me again the following year? So and it's uh, when you get tagged or even if you, yeah, if you get tagged, then it's 120% of that tag value. If you get tagged the next year. So you then average those two out and that's like, you know, an average of $34 million a year or something. So Geno Smith, I would imagine, is going to take the tact of, okay, if if I don't sign whatever deal you offer me, you, you have to franchise tag me, and you might have to do it for two years, and that would pay me an average of $34 million. So that then becomes the starting point. Now, I think if you're Geno Smith and you have played in the NFL for 10 seasons and the most you have made is, you know, I think he's made $14 million over those 10 seasons, and we know he is as confident of a guy as there is. And I think he feels like, you know, he was um, maybe, I don't want to say cheated, but he he feels like he should have been starting a while ago and he's only made $14 million, which is, you know, a lot of money to you and me, but not a lot in terms of quarterbacks. Hmm. I I don't, I don't see him giving any sort of discount. I I wonder if he's going to try to make up for lost time. And so um, I think he's going to try to max this thing out. And so that's why I, I don't see him signing a deal for, um, you know, any less than $30 million. And, you know, there's always some give and take when you talk about guarantees and all that. But, 
I think it's going to cost at least $30 million. Uh, you know, Gino for MVP might be a bridge too far, and that award might not happen. But an award that seems more realistic is Ken Walker winning Offensive uh, Rookie of the Year. I know Fox Sports did their midseason awards, and they gave it to him, despite the fact that he's got a, a, s- a smaller resume, given that he didn't get that starting gig until a few weeks into the season. And I noticed that Pete Carroll this week, and you tweeted about it, uh, had maybe the highest compliment of them all, kind of loosely comparing him not directly, but loosely, to LaDainian Tomlinson, and that's pretty esteemed company to keep. Um, I feel like as this season goes along, and look, I looked at the second half of the schedule, and the defenses are going to get better and better and tougher and tougher now, but it feels like they've got this great safety net where if it's not going great in the passing game, they can run it because he runs so effectively, and then if the run game starts to get stuff, they can open it back up because Geno's been such an effective passer. But Ken Walker's been great this season. He really has. And, you know, there is a part of his game that I think he has not really tapped into, or at least I should say the Seahawks offense has not really tapped into it. And that's what he can do as a receiver out of the backfield. And I know that that was uh, sort of a knock on his game coming out of Michigan State. Really more so his pass blocking was the knock. But he also didn't catch very many passes. And as we quickly learned from watching him in training camp, that was not for lack of skill. That was more just about the way their offense ran uh, for whatever reason. The guy can catch the ball, and he was making plays before he went down with the hernia uh, procedure. And so um, I think there's more – there's just more production to get out of him. And, you know, Carol mentioned LaDainian Tomlinson, which is an interesting name because he's got a chance to uh, tie LaDainian Tomlinson. And I'm, I hope I don't screw this uh, the numbers up here, but according to ESPN Stats and Information – uh, I think LaDainian Tomlinson has the NFL record with a fourth-quarter touchdown in six straight games. Um, Walker has one in four straight games, so he, he's got a chance to, to approach that record. He's really been, in terms of, you know, along with everything else he's done well, with the speed and the power and uh, you know breaking off the long touchdown runs, he's also been pretty clutch, a pretty good closer, if you will, because mm-hmm. you know, a lot of his production has come in the fourth quarter. And so... Um, Again, it's it's sort of crazy to think that there was a time when people thought that that was a bad pick because supposedly <laughs> number forty one overall is too early to draft a running back. I, I, there's still people might still be dug in on that, which is even more crazy to me. But uh, looks like an excellent player and an excellent pick. I believe it's seven touchdowns in the fifth in the fourth quarter so far for Walker. It's been pretty impressive. So we'll see if that can continue uh, into the weekend. Again, a reminder: the Seahawks and the Bucks kick off bright and early on Sunday morning, six thirty from Munich. Brady, thanks for doing this today, man. We really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the game this weekend, and we'll do this again next Friday. All right, fellas. Thank you. See ya. See you later. That's Brady Henderson from ESPN's NFL Nation here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet six fifty. Should we do some Ask Us Anything? It's Ask Us Anything Friday. On the Halford and Bruff show, Trey and Victoria, ask us anything. If you were the Canucks coach, would you do something crazy such as scratching Petey and Hughes for a game as a wake-up call? Sounds ridiculous, but you aren't going to trade either one, so you wouldn't affect trade values of other players this way. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I might do something crazy. Don't I don't mind know. if I do. Yeah, I, I – I, I don't know. Here's here's my question okay. that I have of Bruce Boudreaux right now. We all know he's a player's coach, right? Does he like his players right now? Does he feel like his players have his back? Because as a player's coach, one of the things that you, you have is you've got this notion that you're going to let the guys play 
largely the way they want to play. You're not going to, um, you're not going to, you know, there's Daryl Sutter hockey and Barry Trotz hockey. And although those are effective, I think you'd ask players, is that the style you, you like playing? They they go, no, not really. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's also that feeling of you've got your players back and you're going to be nice to your players. You're not going to play mind games with your players. You're not going to, you know, <laughs> mentally bog them down with things. But how is Bruce Boudreaux thinking about his players right now? Because Bruce Boudreaux is really in the firing line right now. He's the one who's got to go out and answer questions about his boss um, ripping him so publicly. And he's the one that's got to go out and answer questions about why his players can't uh, seem to find a consistency or why their lack of effort looks off. And he's kind of like, ah, man, like, I, I don't know, like, so I, I just wonder what Bruce Boudreaux is thinking about his players right now. Does he like his players? Well, he's probably exasperated and frustrated by the players because that's the messaging that he's put across. Without putting anyone specifically or individually in the crosshairs, how many times have we heard after a game, Jason, Bruce Boudreaux saying things like, well, we told them the way that we want to defend, or we've showed them on video what we want them to do, or we've explained to them the concepts that we want them to execute. And I think at a certain point... Um, he's going to get tired of saying that or maybe hearing himself say it over and over and over again. I also think that um, I talked to a couple different people that are on the road trip and they said there's a real dynamic here where everyone's asking and not even the quiet part, they're just asking it loudly now. If you guys like Boudreaux so much and you say you like Boudreaux so much, why is nobody playing for him? Yeah. Why is nobody doing the things on the ice that will help him keep his job? That's a big thing right now. Because when Rutherford's lobbing hand grenades, it, the way that this team is structured and the way that this team doesn't go about proper systems play, it always falls on Boudreaux. The, 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 the shrapnel hits Boudreaux. And the players are the ones that either have to um, adhere closer to the system and to the structure that they want to play, or they scrap the whole thing and they start playing loosey-goosey hockey again. And and then that's and I do wonder if that might end up being the end game from Boudreaux's side of things mm-hmm. is that if he is the ultimate players coach, I think and and knowing the circumstances that he's without a contract and he's on the hops hot seat and his job might be on the line anyway, maybe the idea will be hey let's run it back to last season where we were quote unquote loose we were playing a more carefree and structureless style and if I'm gonna get if I'm gonna lose my job I may as well lose my job doing the things that. Uh, I like to do, which is allowing the players to go and play hockey, although it might not be sustainable for success long term. Are they did did they really change their system and structure much? I think that they've changed their approach, their their mentality, the way that they're supposed to read plays. I mean that that breakdown from Bourne, by the way, go download the hour one podcast if you haven't already. Our hit with NHL um, Sportsnet analyst Justin Bourne, who was working the panel for the Montreal um, Vancouver game on Thursday. Like Bourne said, they look like they're stuck between either getting in on the forecheck mm-hmm. or being more conservative. To me, that feels like a team that's being asked to do uh, a lot of reading and very little <laughs> reacting to the be, situation. Be aggressive on the forecheck, but don't get caught. Well, th- and that's it, right? And then at that point, you're looking at every individual play and saying, do I gamble here? Do I go here? Do I stay here? And I think that that uh, you're, it's, what is it called? It's analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis. So yeah. that's, that's the phrase. And I do wonder if that's what, Boudreaux and this coaching staff have put into the heads of the players. Well, I think not having the goaltending really affects that style. 
Well, sure. Like it's in the back of your head, man. If I'm aggressive here, we're not exactly getting the saves. And uh, you know, we saw we when you when you're not getting the saves, not only does it affect the bottom line because more goals are going against you. I think it affects the way you play. You're just a little more hesitant to be aggressive, uh, and for good reason. Uh, Vicky from Poco with an ask us anything. Why did you become a fan of your respective NFL teams? Was it a certain player or game or family influence or just plain geographic reasons? Okay, so Mike and I are both Seahawks fans, so I think purely geographic. I've always supported the teams in Seattle if there isn't a corresponding team mm-hmm. in Vancouver. Um, the only exception, I guess, would be baseball, but it's not that I'm not a Mariners fan. I'm just mostly a Blue Jays fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, I, I'm I'm really, honestly, I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of neither well, now. Like, I, I used to be a, a big Blue Jays fan. Back in the day, late 80s, early 90s, um, I cannot say that I'm a hardcore fan of either team. Right now, I enjoyed the Mariners being back in the playoffs, and I was certainly cheering for them um, when they played the Astros. Uh, when they played the Blue Jays, I was kind of like, yeah, you know, like either team wins for me. But um, there are teams that I gravitate towards, and – Probably you can predict them based on the the whole sad club mentality that I've got. Like, I've always been a Seahawks fan, but for example, I used to like the Cleveland Browns back in the Bernie Kosar days mm-hmm. because they they had this underdog feel to them, and I loved their fans. Like the dog pound in the old Cleveland Stadium before they moved to Baltimore, and then they got them back and they built a new stadium. That old stadium was awesome and the fans were awesome mm-hmm. and I remember cheering for the for the Broncos when it was always John Elway would would beat them um I used to like um the Chiefs as well because I remember the first game I ever saw at Arrowhead I was like oh my god like look at this place what a spectacle this place is mm-hmm. so often I'm drawn to those types of teams that have great fans really hardcore fans um, and maybe a bit of an underdog mentality as well. Well, it's an interesting question to ask today, and I don't know. It was sorry, Vicky sent that one in, right? And I don't know if it's uh, she knew that this was coming. But we just finished talking to Brady Henderson about a game that's being played in Germany, first NFL game that's ever being played in Germany. And ESPN's got a really great article up about how big and how frenzied the fan base is, and why the NFL felt like they had to go there. They had eight hundred thousand people sign up to get tickets for this game. Yeah, that's and incredible. They talk a lot about the the U.S. military, ha- you know, throughout history has had a really strong influence in Germany. So there's a lot of either expats or people that have handed down their love of football into places like Munich where there's huge, huge fan bases of all these random teams. Mm-hmm. Like Brady was saying, there's a big Seahawks contingent in <laughs> Germany and there's no real explanation as to why other than they really like football and then you kind of get where Vicky's going with this. It's like people just glom onto teams for certain reasons. Sure. If it's not geographical, it's like, I like this particular player or I like the uniforms or I thought this guy was cool well, or the with, fan base looked really neat, like that kind of stuff. With Newcastle, uh, you know, the, the, the English team that I would say I, I support, I don't, I don't know if I really do anymore, but I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, I love their uniforms. The footlocker cool, uniforms. Yeah, they were cool uniforms and I liked Alan Shearer. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know anything about 
the history of the team or anything like that. I had no ties to Newcastle. My dad's from England, but he didn't grow up in Newcastle. Right. So that's the type of thing. Like, and I think whatever you just, sometimes you're just like, that's my team. Uh, speaking of the football of the international variety, Canada is about to kick off in Bahrain against Bahrain for one of their two World Cup friendlies ahead of the November 23rd game against Belgium. Uh, joining us next for a World Cup and Canada preview, former Whitecaps goalie David Osted is going to join the program. Uh, he's going to be our soccer analyst for the next couple of weeks as we take you up to the World Cup in Qatar. Canada-Belgium kicks off at 7.30. David Osted joins us at 7.30 as well. That's coming up next on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Diana Vissers with your Mental Health Minute, brought to you by the BC Construction Safety Alliance. Diana, I think a lot of the mental health struggles come from on a Friday, Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford and Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, Hour two of this program, which we are right in the middle of, David Osted is going to join us in just a moment here. Uh, Hour two of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Canada is just moments away from kickoff in Bahrain this morning to take on Bahrain in the first of two pre-World Cup friendlies. A reminder, Canada will play its first World Cup match in 36 years on Wednesday, November 23rd. Halford and Bruff, that's us. We're going to be doing a live watch party from the Hollywood Theater in Kitsilano. Uh, the tickets that were released to the public yesterday, it wasn't all of them, public service address. There'll be more tickets later. But the tickets that were released yesterday got snapped up real quick. They were gone within hours. So all the Canada games in the group stage have been, that's all sold out? All snapped up. So I have talked to everyone from the Hollywood Theater and Whitecaps House, etc. There are going to be more tickets released. But I think what this says is that people are very, very excited to see Canada go to the World Cup for the first time in 36 years. And that kickoff match against Belgium is going to be awesome. I'm very excited for it. For more on the Canadian soccer story in the World Cup at large, we are joined by former Vancouver Whitecaps netminder David Osted here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, David. How are you? Good morning. I'm well. Uh, So Canada is moments away from kicking off here, and this is a really interesting dynamic at play. Uh, they're going to Bahrain. They've got two matches to get prepped for the World Cup. This squad that's going to kick off in mere moments here is almost exclusively MLS players. And that's because the MLS season has been over for a bit. A lot of these guys haven't played a competitive match in a while. Uh, what do you think the goals and the objectives are going to be from some of these guys who are just trying to make this Canadian team and get on the plane to Qatar? What are their goals and objectives going to be when they play in this match today? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, right? Because as you said, not all of them um, maybe are, are match fit as they want to be. And uh, if, if you're trying to make a roster for, for something as big as, as the World Cup, uh, I expect to see a very, very motivated team. Uh, it's, it's always interesting when you're going into big events like this. Um, some are trying to, to not get injured. Uh, you have teams sometimes who are, who are taking it easy, but I don't expect that for, from the Canadian team today. I expect to see a bunch of guys who really want to make something that's um, as huge as you mentioned before, uh, 
this going into to the World Cup is. So um, there's going to be a lot of guys who are trying to gain match fitness, but also trying to make um, make, make this roster. Now, you played in MLS for a long time, and obviously for those that are unaware, the season almost runs counter to a lot of the European ones. It starts in the spring, runs through the summer, and then wraps up in the early fall. So uh, what's it like during these months for MLS players who, you know, they look around, and especially at Europe, and see people right in the teeth of their domestic leagues while you guys have been off for a while? Uh, this is essentially the MLF, MLS offseason, so this is an extra challenge to those guys. It, it definitely is, uh, and as you say, it, it's sometimes tough when you come off a, a long season and uh, the ups and downs of a season, but also physical. Um, you have some bruises, you have some uh, some things you have to 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 be mindful of. Um, so it, it's tough, and then you're you're going up against really really good competition that might be in their um, the midst of their season and, and doing really well. So it, it's a challenge for for the guys to uh, both. Um, that match fitness that we spoke about, but also uh, being mentally prepared for for a big task like this. Now, uh, one of the unfortunate but big developments over the last week for the Canadian men's national team was that uh, the backup goalie, Max Crapo, broke his leg in the MLS Cup final, and he's going to miss this World Cup. Now, look, I think everyone knows that Milian Borjan was going to be Canada's number one, and the only way that we would have seen another goalie in was if Borjan got hurt or was really ineffective or the group stage was over. So Crapo's absence isn't going to dramatically affect the on-field product, but I mean, you've been a professional goalkeeper for a long time. You know about the dynamic of the position and how the quote-unquote goalie room kind of works. What kind of impact is that going to have not having Max there, given how important he was during qualifying, uh, his relationship with Borjan, and obviously the disappointment, I think, across the board that he's going to miss out on this maybe once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? Yeah, I think you said it perfectly there. It's I think everybody's got it for uh, for Max for for missing an opportunity like this. Um, he's played a really really good MLS season and then it's been uh, important for the ca- uh, Canadian team. Uh, and and this this goalkeeper union that we speak about that we laugh about sometimes it, it really is important because it's it's a special position. There's only one that can play. You're not going to get five minutes here. You're not going to be shifted into another position. You have this group of guys who are normally always really, really tight, and that's how I see this Canada group as well. So, um, I, I I can almost tell that even Boyan and the other goalkeepers are are probably gutted for for Max as well for not making this. Um, and the the backup role is is a tough one. Um, you have to be ready 100% every time, but you also have to find a way to to give something to the group uh, that might not be on field. It might all your whole role this whole tournament might be um, off field and might be um, giving something to, to to the guy who's playing but also to the guys uh, around the team so it's it's a dynamic that's actually it's it's really important and it's it's tough for Canada to, to miss a guy like uh, Max uh, in that role we're speaking of former Whitecaps goalie David Osted here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650, uh, looking ahead to the Canada-Bahrain match, which is now kicked off, but also looking towards the groups at the FIFA World Cup in Qatar coming up in just a matter of weeks. Now, David, the big news this week is that a lot of these countries have released their official rosters for the guys that will be going to Qatar. And I do want to start with Belgium because we knew it was going to be a tough opponent Regardless, this was a third-place finisher at the last World Cup. They've been a top-five team in the FIFA rankings for quite some time now. But it felt like it almost hit home even more when they announced their roster because you kind of go, 
that's deep and it's loaded and there's talent everywhere across the board. And then I think you really sort of understand the magnitude of the challenge at hand. It's that it's not just taking on this team that is so highly ranked, but the individual players playing at the highest levels with the biggest clubs, Champions League, everything. It really kind of underscores just how tough this challenge is going to be for Canada. I think you're right. Uh, I think uh, you look at this Belgian team. Uh, for me, it's it's just one of the best in, in the world. Um, you, you talk about the individual players. It's it's uh, if you just notice the amount of, of of games they have with this team. I think De Bruyne is 93 caps. Lukaku is 102. Mertens 106. Carrasco 59. Like there's just quality all over this team. And what strikes me about the the, the Belgian team is that they've been together for so long. And they have a coach in, in Roberto Martinez who's been there since 2016 and uh, has, has been able to work with this team uh, and his possession style of play for that long. So they, they not only look really, really strong as individual players, this looks like a group. This looks like a, a, a proper team who's been together for, for a long time. And, and they, they're, they're one of the favorites, I think, uh, in this World Cup. You know, a lot of what you just said could be applied to the Croatians as well, who have, it's a very veteran-laden squad. There's a lot of guys over the age of 30, and then in the case of Modric, who's 37, but still playing at a really world-class level. It's interesting because uh, Croatia got as far as they ever have in a World Cup last time out, losing in the final. Now, some people are thinking that there might be a regression just due to the age of this group, but you look at it, and again, I, I compare it to Belgium. It's a golden generation that is a little bit longer in the tooth, but they might also have that burning desire for one more great run at it, in part because they came so close last time but ultimately fell short. Yeah, and, and they've had a really good lead up to to this World Cup. Uh, they just beat uh, Denmark twice in the in the Euros, which is unfortunately obviously. But um, I watched those games, and they were they were so good uh, in that. And it's funny we continue to speak about Modric, which uh, at 38 we we should be speaking about someone else. But it's just impossible to to leave him out of the conversation because, as you say, he's just so good, and he really makes this team uh, tick and. Um, there, there's some question marks for me about uh, Croatia, as you said. Is there going to be a regression? Um, they were so close the last time, but there's there's so much quality here as well. Um, it's three three hundred caps just in the midfield. That that's unbelievable. Um, so they, they're a really strong team, and it's going to be a, a tough matchup for for Canada as well. Uh, before we let you go, David, I've got to ask about a team near and dear to your heart. That, of course, is the Danish national team, which is coming. It's a really interesting time for the organization and the federation because you had everything that happened at the most recent Euro Championships with the, the such a, a frightening event with Christian Eriksen and then the storybook run to the semifinals. And now if you look at a lot of the top five leagues in Europe and some of the best clubs, there's so many different Danish players on so many of these different teams. Uh, I know that this is a team that you obviously probably follow pretty closely. What are the expectations for this team going into the World Cup? Um, my expectation is that they're going to go far. Okay. Uh, I really like I really like the group. Um, not only do they have the the veteran players who've been at these kind of uh, moments in this stage before, but uh, they also have a lot of good uh, younger players coming up. Um, so I expect it to be a, a strong showing. Um, it's never easy to perform at, at a World Cup at a big stage, but 
this this team is so close and also what happened to to Christian Eriksen you just saw um for those who were watching that you saw how close this whole team was um they they basically they fell apart which you understand completely when they saw what happened to to a friend and to a teammate um but they also uh, I think got even closer uh from this and and that cohesiveness is is still there in that team uh and then knowing some of these guys and having spoken to them about what happened um this is this is one of the strongest teams I think is in there um there might be individual players in other teams that are of of higher quality but as a team I see Denmark as as one of the strongest David, this was awesome, man. Thanks a lot for taking the time to do this today. I'll give a quick update from Bahrain. Canada's already up 1-0. Six-minute Ismail Kone, the youngster from Montreal, who looks like the next great Canadian soccer player, got the goal. So uh, good start there and good start with us. This was fantastic. Thanks a lot for doing it. Uh, we'll do this again next Thursday or next Friday. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. That's uh, David Osted, former Whitecaps goalie here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. As I mentioned, uh, Canada off to a good start against a Bahrainian team that, uh, I'll be perfectly honest, uh, Minnows, I think they're ranked 85th in the world. Name all the players. I don't know one of them. Uh, I know that they are from Bahrain. Right, okay. Almost exclusively. <laughs> <laughs> Their goalie is named Joey Bahrain. <laughs> um, but this this is an interesting one because I think a lot of people that don't understand... If you're a casual follower of this whole soccer thing, you're probably looking at this game and saying, where is Alfonso Davies? And mm-hmm. What about Jonathan David? These guys were not invited to this particular match because this was kind of designed for all the guys playing in North America to get a mini camp and a match. Get their legs under them. Having been off for months, really. For example, Lucas Cavallini of the Whitecaps started in this match. I mean, his last competitive match was almost over a month ago. So we'll be interesting to see from this match, if you're looking for what the takeaway is, uh, which of these guys can play themselves onto the plane. And by that, I mean which guys that are maybe on the outside looking in or bubble guys for the roster will be able to qualify to go to Qatar and be part of John Herdman's squad. I was just looking at the World Cup odds at playnow.com. Mm-hmm. Um, Belgium at 17-1. to 1. That's that might offer some value, actually. Yeah, the, the the biggest issue with this squad and this golden generation led by the likes of De Bruyne mm-hmm. is have they missed their window? Right. Was twenty eighteen was that the one? Their window was twenty fourteen, even when they first burst onto the scene, um, and they came agonizingly close in twenty eighteen in Russia. If you look at their back line, and it's obviously going to be the weakness of the team. Uh, it's a little bit longer in the tooth. And a lot of the guys that four years ago that were playing at their highest levels and playing in like Serie A and mm-hmm. the Premier League have now, like a lot of them have gone back to playing in the Belgian League or playing in lower leagues. Is it as hard to find defensemen in soccer as it is in hockey? No. Because <laughs> it seems like all the weaknesses, like if you're talking about, you just mentioned Belgium, that's going to be their weakness, the back line. Uh, Canada, it's probably Canada's weakness if there is one, the back line. Mm-hmm. England, a lot of talk about the back line. Uh, for England, and yep. specifically, you know, is Harry Maguire going to play for Southgate? Um, is that, <laughs> are especially like right-footed soccer players? Is, um, that, is that an no, issue? No, no, it doesn't have the exact same right, <laughs> right, right shot defenseman kind of thing. Do they play I, the right shots against the left shots you, and everything? <laughs> no, not quite. You don't, you don't have to have two guys with opposite strong feet playing alongside one another. <laughs> I think that what you're talking about, though, 
is there's a there's a reluctance to move on because the, the the four usually the three or four you play at the back. Yeah, it's a unit, and you go with familiarity and comfort and trust factors. So oftentimes you'll defer to the older guys just right. because it's like it's a comfy old slipper, you know. Well, especially it, if the manager's been there for a while too. So, so Southgate in England is a great example yeah. of that with Stones and Maguire and Shaw. With this Belgian squad, uh, David quite astutely pointed out, they've had the same manager for a long time now. Roberto Martinez has been there for a long time. So he's relied on the same backs, even if they've gotten a little bit longer in the tooth or if they've moved on to smaller, less glamorous clubs. There's still, there's a consistency there. I think one of the interesting things about this World Cup coming up is there isn't really a group of death. No, for the first time in a long time, actually. People have kind of decided that if there has to be a group of death, it's Group B, and that's the one with England, uh, USA, Wales, and Iran. And that's basically just based on FIFA rankings. They're like, I guess these have the highest rankings. But England, which is heavily favored to win this group, they're not in great form right now. Uh, neither are the Americans. Um, Iran is considered, in terms of rankings, the worst of the group. And then there's Wales that... yeah. You know, it's Wales. Gareth Bale. I know they've got the Gareth Bale, but no, final. I know, but like it's, it's, it's Wales. They're, you know, no one thinks Wales is going to win the World Cup. No, I mean, they would be, they would probably be the longest shot to advance and, out of them in Iran out of the group, right? And I think the fact that there are some pretty good teams that failed to qualify, Italy, Nigeria failed to qualify, that's mm-hmm. always going to, I don't want to say water down the groups, but, you know, Norway, maybe water down the groups. Norway, the best player on the planet right now, probably, um, Erling Holland isn't going to be there as well. The interesting, so we did get this question in. I may as well just, it's kind of an ask us anything. I, I, I flagged this earlier in the week, but we never got to it. And people were asking about uh, what the play is actually going to look like at this particular World Cup. So the general rule of thumb is the play at a World Cup, it's one tournament football. People are just fighting to survive. So you won't get the free-flowing, open, intricate passing of a domestic team and part of that has to do with the familiarity factor. Yeah. Right? So, for example, this Canadian team, a lot of these guys haven't played together in months and months and months because they're all with their European clubs or their MLS clubs. You get thrown together for a mini camp. It's kind of not unlike the teams that we would see, if you want to use a hockey comparison, uh, those the 2010 Olympics, the Salt Lake Olympics, the 2014 Olympics, where these super teams get thrown together, yeah. but you quickly realize that, Chemistry may be an issue because a lot of these guys, quite frankly, haven't played together. Um, Canada's strategy, especially in Sochi, was what? We can defend better than anybody. We're going to choke the life out of our opponents, and we'll get the offense at a certain point. Mm -hmm. That mentality often gets adopted by a lot of the squads going to a World Cup. Uh, England, perhaps most famously. Uh, Southgate's (laughs) biggest strength and biggest weakness might be that he is a tournament football manager, meaning... He would much prefer to see his team prevent scoring and keep the match going for as long as possible as opposed to getting on the front foot and yeah. attacking and being freewheeling in attack, even though they've got all these great attacking players. Like England's more than happy having a game goal goalless for long stretches. Because you can get it, you can survive. I don't in know advance. if they will be as much this time around because I don't think there's as much trust in their back line. Oh, I think it's almost exactly what it's but gonna will, it's, but, but will it work? I mean, like you look at the run that they went on in Russia mm-hmm. and you look on the run that they went on in the most recent Euro championships. Now, the Euro had a little bit more offensive flair, but Russia was almost exclusively Harry Kane. 
Yeah. Harry Kane, Harry Kane. It was one player who was an opportunistic finisher. Mm -hmm. Penalties, automatic. Inside the six, pretty automatic. And then they just kind of grinded through the rest of the results. I mean, the individual defenders aside, you can really stack things if you want where you just won't concede anything. Mm -hmm. Chances, corners, free kicks, because you will play negative football. It is painful to watch. And it's a lot of the reason why casual fans are like, I don't like this. Nothing has happened for 90 minutes. Right. To which I say, well, get ready for the next 30 because there's also <laughs> nothing going to happen there either. But that's at times. Get that, ready for penalty kicks. Something will happen there. And, that, and then that's the payoff, right, is the excitement of penalties. But if you play tournament football, which a lot of the countries will aspire to do, uh, it can be kind of boring at times. I'm not going to lie. Uh, ask us anything from Dan. This is a weird one. Have you guys ever thought of writing a book together? Like a like a political thriller, I don't think that would that would that would do very well. Uh, erotic, guys, erotic romance novel, maybe. These two guys they they find DNA for dinosaurs. So and they open up a theme ah, park. Billy and the Clonosaurus. So truly, one of the amazing things I think is that anyone in this world has the attention span to actually write a book. And I'm not talking about the book that you and Drance wrote where you're taking like a hundred little thoughts. Yeah, it wasn't really expanding a, it wasn't on it. really a book. It I'm talking about um, you know, like either like a very intricate novel or you know those um historical novels that there's so much research in. Yeah. And not only do you have to do all this research, so you have to read all these books then you have to craft uh, an interesting narrative around all that research and actually make a point. Mm -hmm. I think it's incredible. I just, I do not have that attention span. Half the time I'm like, are all these writers on like Ritalin or something like that? I was like, but it's, but that's just my, my lack of ability to sit down and do anything. Right. And that, and that's uh, part know, of the challenge, to be honest. You have to enjoy the process. You, you have, have to enjoy writing. And although I started out writing uh, as, as a career, like I never really uh, enjoyed it. Like I was kind of like, oh, I got to write now. Or, you know, if I would do end of game stories, which we did for a bit and is really tough. And you see who the good writers are when they can watch a game, make a few notes, and then write this really compelling story about the game. And that's kind of a dying art oh, yeah. these days, the the game story. But a guy like Bruce Arthur for the Toronto Star is like a terrific game writer. Yeah. Uh, like, and, and you just uh, see how easily he can do it. And, and frankly, w- when I saw one of the most uh, distressing things was seeing how easily some guys did that stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm never going to be – good at this. Right. I can be capable at this, but I'm never going to be good at this. And I'm like, I should just do radio. It seems easier. I assume that dynamic. I mean, you grew up around music. You were, uh, do we classify you as a former musician or are you still, are you just well, dormant? I'm, I'm still a, yeah, dormant <laughs> musician. I mean, I play okay. piano, I sing, but I, I, I don't play professionally anymore. Like I used to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you must've seen people, uh, like at their craft who they just had such a natural ability or were so good at it that there was a sense of like jealousy oh, yeah. and envy. Well, we played with many big bands over the years and like the guys that were super pro and played 300 shows a year, you just marveled at how every single night they would come up with this incredible performance just seemingly willing it into existence right right especially after partying the night before like it's <laughs> it, it is an art to be able to do that every single night at such a high level and, and yeah not everyone could do it Absolutely. I think that's when you start talking about flow states 
You know, have you yeah. have you heard of that stuff? Like you definitely get into a rhythm, right? Yeah. I mean, once you do it for so long, it's like anything. You you do it. You play a show every single night or do anything every single day. You start to get in a rhythm and get pretty good at it. But when I went to see Elton John, you know, he's seventy five years old, and I'm kind of like, man, what a grind that must be yeah. going from you know his last stop was like in the Tacoma Dome, and then he's in you know Vancouver. Where, you know, he doesn't have any ties to Vancouver. He has some ties to Canada, but none to Vancouver. And he's just on this, again, 75 years old, and he brought it, right? Yep. And and I and part of it is a professional responsibility that you've got to do it. But part of it must also be that he just really enjoys performing. Well, at his age, too, and I, I don't mean that as a slight. I mean, him and his band, these guys have been playing professionally for 50 years. His band was not young either. No, they're all in their 60s or, yeah. or up pretty much, except a couple mm-hmm. of them. And these guys have been jamming together for 50-odd years, You could, and it showed. Right. Like they've been playing professionally for decade after decade after decade, thousands of shows under their belt, and that's what you get. <laughs> I like this test. text. Uh, you're right. World-renowned authors are far more skilled, intelligent, and patient than two sports bloggers turned sports radio hosts. Makes a good point. It's true. Yeah, I can't. I can't <laughs> disagree or argue with anything that that texter said. Uh, one final hour to go on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. We are going to do what we learns and ask us anything's in the final hour. We're also going to talk to the Moj Bob. The Moj Marjanovic is going to join us to preview Sunday's Western CFL final between the Bombers and the Lions. Lions go in as four and a half point underdogs in Winnipeg. Can they get it done? Can they advance to their first Grey Cup since 2011? We will ask the Moj coming up next on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.